0: Please do be taking up your Bibles and turning to page 942, page 942, Habakkuk chapter 3. You may also like to have the uh, sermon uh, outline uh, to hand if that's helpful to you. Most people have found it. Great. A boy once uh, asked his mother what God looked like, and she looked at him and replied, rather honestly, I don't know. I've never seen him. Uh, The little boy went away and uh, returned a short while later uh, with a a scrap of sheet of paper, and uh, he'd obviously been doing a drawing on it. And uh, he gave it to his mother. And his mother looked at it, was slightly perplexed, wasn't quite sure what she was supposed to be looking at. And she, she said, look, what is it? And he said, mummy, it's a picture of God. Now you can know what he looks like. Now, uh, amazingly uh, thoughtful, amazingly kind of, his, uh, of, of her son. Uh, and I guess it probably wasn't that helpful But nevertheless, it does make the point uh, that uh, at least he was trying to help his mother to learn something more about God. And that is a good and an important thing for us to do. It's vital because unless we know what God is like, then we won't know how to treat him appropriately. And we won't know how he is going to treat us. Also, we can't know what to expect from him. And we can't know what he expects from us. In fact, actually, it gives us no confidence before him at all, does it? Noah Coward was once asked what he thought about God. Again, he was very honest and he said that, well, we've never properly been introduced. And I think that's where a lot of people are still at in our world. And it's actually true, isn't it, for all of us. That's where we start out. In the beginning, we are uncertain. We don't know, we lack insight and understanding and any confidence about uh, who God is, about how we can know him, about how we can pray to him and so on. And there may well be some people here this morning for whom that explains and uh, perhaps sums up where they are at. And yet, if we're honest, there are others of us here this morning who may have been a Christian for a very long time but actually we are still learning about who God is. Learning about how to relate to him. Learning about what our expectations of him can and should be. And that's very much the situation for the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, if you've been here on previous Sundays, uh, you'll know that way back in chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 2, uh, he was perplexed by what he saw was no action on God's behalf as he and his fellow godly people in his country were facing persecution. Uh, he was living in Judah and uh, the people in Judah were treating him with injustice and they were persecuting him. And he cried out to God, How long have I got to go on waiting for you to do something about it? God then in verse uh, 5 uh, answers him by saying, look, actually, uh, Habakkuk, it's all in hand. I'm actually already working out my great plan of justice for you. And it's going to come in the shape of the Babylonians. But this answer perplexed uh, Habakkuk again. And he had questions for the Lord, uh, chapter 12, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 2. He cries out to the Lord, why then? Those Babylonian people, we've heard of them, but they're far more ungodly than we are. How can you, the holy God, who can't look on ungodliness, how can you use them, a far more ungodly nation, to judge us? And though he has made that complaint, beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk said, look, I am going to wait for your response, Lord. And the Lord, uh, last week we saw this in chapter 2, the Lord's answer was that actually it, it was a message for everybody. It was urgent, it was important, and it concerned the future. Something that, that although it was unfolding now, was going to have to wait for Habakkuk to see uh, in fulfilment. It was a message that was spelt out with five woes for the wicked, which was going to cause them, or should have caused them, to turn to God. And three great realities for the righteous, which would help them trust in God. And it's on the back of all that Habakkuk has been learning from the Lord about the future that we find Habakkuk deep in prayer upon his knees before the Lord this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. And as this prayer unfolds in chapter 3, we will find that Habakkuk has not only been listening to what God is saying he is doing now and in the future, but he has learnt great things about what God has done in the past. And that has changed him and transformed him about how he treats God and what he expects from God. We see in sort of small detail uh, in chapter 2 what Habakkuk's prayer is to the Lord's message. But uh, in the rest of uh, chapter 3, we see uh, Habakkuk almost remembering what God has done in the past. And so we have this prayer sandwiched between what God has said he would do in the, in the future and, and is doing in the present, and uh, between what God has said he has done in the past. And uh, as Habakkuk looks to the future... And looks to the past, he knows that the future is a done deal. He is able to say to the Lord, verse 2 I have heard of your fame, I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. He knows that God's past performance is a total guarantee of his future performance. And that's so different, isn't it? As we look at the world around us today, we have a new government in situ. We haven't got a clue what they're going to do because they've got no track record at all. They promise much, but we have no guarantee that they're going to deliver. And even where there is a track record, so often we are advised that past performance is no guarantee of future performance. Uh, Ali and I are uh, thinking about making uh, an investment at the moment. And uh, everyone who advises us says this. It's something like this. They say, look, this is what we've done in the past. And uh, they say that because they want to say, look, actually, your money is safe in our hands. But then they say the sort of small print, which they've got to say. They, They advise you that, well, past performance is no guarantee for the future. And, of course, when we hear that small print... We begin to have no confidence at all in the people who are advising us. Can we trust them? Can we give them our money? It almost seems a bit like a lottery. There are no assurances and no guarantees. However, with the Lord, it is so different. What you see in the past, you get in the present and the future. He does not change. Past performance is a total guarantee of the present and future performance of God. This is what Habakkuk has learnt. And it's moved him from questioning God to confidence in God. From trouble, from a troubled mind to a mind that trusts in God. From fear to faith. And we can see this in Habakkuk's prayer. It's a prayer that will start this week and we will finish next week and it culminates in great rejoicing and trust. As we uh, begin looking at this prayer in more detail, we see that uh, verse 1, we're told it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, and it's on Shigionoth. Uh, that word's uh, a musical term, and when I was busy talking to the staff uh, uh, a week or two back about this passage, I-, I turned to Peter Turnbull and I said to Peter, it's a bit like uh, saying that uh, our prayers should be put to music and that our prayers should be given a real rousing music behind it, to give us assurance and to, 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 uh, to show us and to prove to us that as we are praying, we are praying truthful things and we can have confidence. You know the great hymns that we sing often have great moving uh, tunes to give us the confidence that what we are singing is true. So it's a musical term. And it also reminds us that uh, what Habakkuk is uh, uh, speaking here is meant for the whole of God's people. It's not just something for himself. It is something that is to be sung among the people. As you look through it, you heard uh, Dave, as he was reading out uh, uh, this passage, he kept on saying that word silah. It is in the original. It is a musical term. We find it again in the Psalms. And it reminds us that these words are for the teaching for God's people to learn about him together. And so, uh, as we come this morning, these words are not only to uh, help Habakkuk's people of his time, but believers like us today. To help believers in the 6th and 7th century BC, and us today in the 21st century AD. And we can see as we look at this uh, prayer in uh, detail in verse 2, and as we see it sort of uh, fleshed out in verses 3 onwards we see that uh, there are three things that Habakkuk has learnt. Three things. And the first thing is this. It's learning to be humble before the Lord. Learning to be humble before the Lord. Beginning of verse 2. I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. As Habakkuk has heard of what God is going to do in the future and is already at work doing uh, in the present, he has also recalled what God has done in the past. And it has given him huge confidence. He says, Look, Lord, I have heard of what you have done, I've heard of your fame, of the amazing things that, speak God, uh, that people speak of that you have done. Your reputation precedes you. And he has put that reputation alongside what God has promised to do in the present and the future. And Habakkuk is in awe because he realises that this is the true and living God and there's nothing else he can do apart from fall on his knees in prayer and in utter awe. He knows that the Lord is the real deal. Uh, Lots of people try to uh, catch our attention these days and uh, make us in awe of them. Uh, I guess uh, at the moment, if you're a tennis fan, it'll be the people that are busy fighting it out on the clay courts of Roland Garros. And of course, we've already seen some of the big seeds tumble. There'll be the, uh, for those of us that like motor racing, uh, there'll be the Formula One, the Turkish Grand Prix in Istanbul today. Maybe you're in awe of those drivers or those cars. Or perhaps as the World Cup hits our screens later on next month, the Football World Cup, you'll be in awe of the footy players. Or maybe it's you're in awe of the rich or the important people, the Queen or Bill Gates or the uh, uh, chairman of uh, Apple, whoever it may be. But you know what? None of these come even near the Lord. The Lord who has revealed himself in history, the Lord who is still at work, in our time, and will be at work in the future. And yet, you know what? We are far more awed, aren't we, than the people that we see. Uh, We're far more awed by the people we see around us than by the Lord God himself. We're far more quick to praise them than to praise the one who has made them. And yet their glory is confined to a sport or to one country or to an area of life. But listen to the Lord by comparison. Verse 3, God came from Timan, the Holy One came from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, not just part of the heavens, his glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth, not just in one part of the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. People's power may extend over a nation or a sport or an industry, but the Lord's goes over the whole earth. Verse 5, he uses plagues. Plagues go before him. Pestilence follows his steps. He's the one who shakes the earth, who makes the ancient mountains crumble. They've been there forever, but he is the everlasting one who causes even them to, to collapse. He's the one, verse 7, before whom nations are in distress and anguish. And then later on, as we see verses 8 onwards, we will see how the Sovereign Lord goes about working for his people. This is the Lord. This is the one we are meeting together to worship this morning. This is the Lord whose word we are looking at now. This is the Lord who lives in our hearts. If you are a Christian person this morning, he is living in you by his Spirit. And our first response to Him must be one of great humility, of awe, and of worship. He, as we sang in our first hymn this morning, He is the immortal, invisible God, only wise, and we are nothing, nothing compared to Him. Once Habakkuk had questioned, once he had complained, now he is silent before the Lord. Who speaks, and he praises him in all humility and awe and wonder. We don't need to look back to these uh, events. Uh, we can look back to a far more supreme revelation of God as he came into the world in his son, Jesus Christ. Just listen to the ways in which uh, John summarises in his gospel uh, what he had to say about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says this, John 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you want to see what God is like, have a look at Jesus. And there's so much evidence, uh, John ends his his, uh, gospel this way. He says this, he says, Jesus did many other things as well, i.e. in addition to what I've written about. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the true and living God who has revealed himself and we are to be in awe and we are to be humble before him. We, like Habakkuk, may face times of trial or persecution. You may be going through that even today. You may have experienced that this week as somebody has made a joke of you and your belief in Jesus. We may not understand why such times come. We may wonder what God is up to, just as Habakkuk did. But we must learn to come before him in true humility and trust him for he is the Lord. And what will that humility look like? Uh, Peter, in his uh, letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse verse 6, says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. That is what true humility is casting our anxiety on him, not grasping hold of it and holding on to it more and more tightly ourselves, but giving it to the one who can help and who will help. Learning to be humble before the Lord. That is the first thing that Habakkuk has learned. But secondly, he has learnt to be hungry for the Lord's work today. Just look down at the next part of his prayer in verse 2. He says, renew them, renew those deeds in our day, in our time, make them known. Habakkuk has just heard God's judgment on Babylon. He's also heard of God's judgment on Judah, his own people. And yet, you know what, as as he's looked back into history, as he's looked at the power and the glory of God, as we've seen in verses 1 through 2, 7 already, he also remembers the victories that God has given his people. The victories that he has won for them against their enemies. He sees salvation for his people and wrath and destruction for his enemies. Deliverance for his people, destruction for their enemies. And that gives him confidence to cry out, Lord, renew those things in our day. You are the God who is mighty to save. And who can and will deliver us. So do it again now, Lord, in our time. Once he had questioned whether the Lord was at work. Now he has learnt that he is. And he is hungry for that work to go forward. And he believes it will. Past performance, you see, is is a guarantee of the Lord's present and future performance. And as you cast your eyes through the Lord's past performance, in verses 8 through to 15, we see that the Lord is victorious. Verse 8, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? No, it wasn't, but you were using them to bring your victory for your people. Verse 9, you uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows. He was the archer who defended his people, who fights for them. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. The glint of your flying arrows the lightning of your flashing spear. Verse 12, the Lord is the one who walks out in wrath. Who threshes the nations. We might perhaps understand that better by saying thrashes the nations. He is the one, verse 13, who came out. To deliver his people, to save his anointed, to crush the leader of the land of wickedness, to strip him from head to foot. With his own spear, verse 14, to pierce his head. The one who vanquishes the nations as they came against his people. Gloating that they were going to devour them when in fact they were the ones who were trampled under his feet. So you see, as as Habakkuk surveys all this, as he learns all of this, he becomes confident that the Lord will bring justice in Judah through the Babylonian invasion and judgment on Babylon subsequently. And of course, as we stand, as we look back and see those prophecies, we can see that those things did happen. If you look back on the uh, first page of your uh, sermon outlines, you can see the increasing fulfillment that they did happen. That yes, Babylon did invade Judah. That Persia did defeat Babylon. And we should take courage that God rides out for his people. That he can and will save us. They tell us that God will intervene. We may not know how, we may not know when. But he will keep his people. Habakkuk had to wait for that invasion of Judah. He had to wait for the justice that it brought. He had to wait for the judgment of Babylon, but it did come. But there's a deeper level of fulfillment also in these verses. They point us to the fulfillment yet again in Jesus. You can't read verse 13 without thinking of him. You came to deliver your people, to save your anointed one, your Christ, you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the embodiment of all that the king should have been. He came into the world and he came to die. And upon the cross as he died, he bore the sins of the world. He told us that was what he was doing. He bore the sins of the world and took the wrath of the Father. And yet as Jesus died, but then was raised again with power and in power as God came to save him. We know that by doing that, he proved that Jesus had done what he set out to do. That he had conquered sin, that he had paid for sin once and for all through his death, that he had won the victory over Satan, over the one who is the leader of the land of the wicked, that in dying and rising, he in fact paraded Satan, made a public spectacle of him, just like the vanquished did after a battle. And it's amazing, isn't it? You you look through to uh, Colossians and you see in the book of Colossians chapter 2, I'll just read it for you just so that you can hear what it says. Just listen to uh, what uh, Colossians 2 verse 15 says here. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them on the cross. That is verse 13 fulfilled. That is the greater fulfillment of these verses which point not just to Jesus' death and resurrection but to his final coming on that final day when he returns, when justice will be done and completed. And so this shows us, doesn't it, that we can pray with absolute certainty that in and through Jesus we do have that perfect plea before God, that we need not despair that if we are in Jesus Christ and have believed in him, we are safe. This is the promised powerful and personal work of the Lord. That if we are his, he will protect us and keep us going through to the end. That is the work that we are to be crying out for him to keep on doing in our day. Renew them. Renew them, Lord, in our day. And you know how much we believe these verses are true will be borne out by how much we are praying for them. To come true, whether we are praying for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world, praying that God will go to their aid and will help and strengthen them and help them to stand, it will be borne out in our prayer life for our brothers and sisters here at Christchurch who are going through tough times. It will be borne out by how much we are praying for ourselves rather than trying to march on in our own strength as we struggle and fight against sin and against those who would oppose the Lord and his people. Let's ask the Lord to renew his work today. That is a great prayer to be praying. And I hope and pray that you'll be praying it with me. And it's a great prayer, isn't it, for us in our personal struggle with sin, isn't it? If we are struggling with a sin today, you know what that sin is that keeps on coming up and biting us And holding us back. Cry out to the Lord to renew his work in you. That you may stand firm and not yield to temptation. This is the great work that we are to be praying for. And to be hungry for. And yet I suspect most of us, if you think about hunger, most of us think about what we're going to eat for lunch today. Most of us are perhaps hungry for success at work. Hungry for fame or for family. But I suspect we do not hunger for the Lord's defeat of his enemies and the defence of his people. That is the best thing, the right thing to be hungering for. And that is exactly what Habakkuk has learned. He is hungry for the Lord's work in his day. And then finally, thirdly, he was learning to be hopeful. Learning to be hopeful for the Lord's mercy. Many people say that as they uh, read the Bible that the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is the God of mercy. But the truth is they can't have read the Bible if that's what they believe because as you look here, even in these verses, Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord, in wrath remember mercy. Yes, he is the God who comes in wrath but he is also the God who comes first in mercy. Habakkuk knew this for himself. He had learnt that for himself. For he is someone who knew, who knew that he deserved wrath and yet had received mercy. He knew that. In these verses here, verses 3 through to 15, we see the wrath come out clearly with God's anger and wrath. And often it's the, the mercy is hidden until we remember that for example, verse 5, the Lord used the plagues in Egypt in order to rescue his people from Egypt. But then he used plagues to judge his people, to bring his people back to him in the desert. And yet the Lord never stopped loving them. He did it because he loved them. And he continued to love them and continue to be with them and to work in and through them and for them. Wrath and mercy side by side. So as he cries out, Lord, remember mercy in wrath. May well be crying out, Lord, look as as Babylon invades. Please look out for your people. Please remember us in mercy as all this happens. But I think most particularly he is crying out for the people in Judah. For those who do not yet know the Lord, to to those who have rebelled against the Lord and have turned away from him, and for those whom the Lord has pronounced wrath on also from Babylon. That is who he's crying out for most particularly here. May well be that he's remembering the words of Psalm 103. Let me just read to you from uh, verse 6. Psalm 103. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. That's exactly what he's been doing to Habakkuk. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's quick to love, slow to be angry. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That is what the Lord will do for all who cry out to him for mercy. Here is Habakkuk appealing to the Lord to have mercy on his enemies, that in wrath he would remember mercy. He prayed for it here. And you know what? Decades later, as Judah emerged from Babylon, back to its own country, they came back stronger in faith than when they went in. And yet, unbelievably, many in Babylon also turned to the Lord. You want to see how that happened and what happened? Have a look, have a read through Daniel, the book of Daniel. How even the king of Babylon is shown mercy as he comes to personal faith. Just listen to this. These are the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4, verse 37, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he ju- does is just and right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That is amazing. If ever there was a person who you would think was outside God's mercy, it would be the king of the nation that he was going to exert his wrath and judgment upon. In wrath, the Lord remembered mercy. That prayer was answered and it is answered every single time that anyone cries out to the Lord in faith. That's what uh, Ephesians 2 reminded us today as well. It's where every single person in here in this room once was all of us also once lived amongst them the disobedient gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were nat- we were by nature objects of wrath that is where all of us are because of our rebellion against god but verse 4 because of his great mercy Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Might well be someone here this morning who has yet to put their hand out to the Lord and ask for mercy. All of us, all of us are under his wrath, facing death and judgment. And hell. And we cannot find mercy until we come to Him in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's longing for you to do that, just to put your hand out and say, Yes, I believe. Why wait another moment? You can be sure that He will meet you with mercy. So if that's the personal application for us to receive mercy that's on offer. It's also for us to pray for others to receive mercy, isn't it? Habakkuk here is doing just that and he's praying for those who persecute him and his people. Do you remember Jesus said the same? He said, pray for those who persecute you. And as he died upon the cross, he said, Father, forgive. How about us? I suspect most of the time when we pray for people in, around the world, we pray for those who are being persecuted rather than the persecutors. And yet, that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. In wrath, remember mercy. Pray for the leaders of China, for the Middle Eastern countries, for those in Africa who are deliberately trying to wipe out Christians. Pray for those who make life difficult for us in this country. Whether it be on a national level, at government, or even in our family, or at work the people we live with or near, even people within uh, the Church of England who make life difficult sometimes. Uh, this last week, just to as I close, uh, this last week I was privileged to visit some people at work and talk to them about uh, living for Jesus. And uh, I was trying to uh, help them to see uh, that they could be used by the Lord in their workplace for him. And yet they said to me, look David, we we don't even think we can have a Bible sitting on our desk. We don't think we can speak openly about Jesus because otherwise we will come under discipline for doing that. That is fear. But actually, when we come to know the true God and are in awe of him, we're those who cry out, do what you've done before, Lord. Renew your work in our day. And please have mercy on those people in authority. That is a challenge, isn't it? Because far far more often, we pray for those who are being persecuted, not the, perse- not the persecutors. Habakkuk's prayer arose out of what he had learnt about the Lord. He had a sure hope of mercy. He was hungry for the Lord's deeds in his day. He humbled himself before the Lord. This is not just information for information's sake. This is transforming. This is life-changing. I hope and pray these words for us will transform us, that we may have greater confidence as we come before God, but we will also know what to expect from him as we pray to him and as we live for him. Let's pray.